Welcome to Fast Asleep. Hello, hello. So happy to have you back with us. Are you ready to finish our William Faulkner story? At Fast Asleep, we have done two of his stories so far. It's not a lot, I know. And they are a workout, but we love them. He actually wrote 19 novels, 20 screenplays, one play, six collections of poetry, and 125 short stories. Let's finish ours right now, shall we? All right, my friends, I want you to find your place. I want you to please just let everything else go. Tuck in, everybody, for the conclusion of Barn Burning. From the woodpile through the rest of the afternoon, the boy watched them. The rug spread flat in the dust beside the bubbling wash pot. The two sisters stooping over it with that profound and lethargic reluctance, while the father stood over them, in turn implacable and grim, driving them, though never raising his voice again. Oh, he could smell the harsh, homemade lie they were using. He saw his mother come to the door once and look toward them with an expression, not anxious now, but very like despair. He saw his father turn, and he fell to with the axe and saw from the corner of his eye his father raise from the ground a flattish fragment of field stone and examine it and return to the pot. Oh, and this time, his mother actually spoke. Abner, Abner, please don't. Oh, please, Abner. And then he was done, too. It was dusk. The whippoorwills had already begun. He could smell coffee from the room where they would presently eat the cold food remaining from the mid-afternoon meal, though when he entered the house, he realized they were having coffee again, probably because there was a fire on the hearth, before which the rug now lay spread over the backs of the two chairs. The tracks of his father's foot were gone where there had been, ah, where they had been were now long, water-cloudy scoriations resembling the sporadic course of a Lilliputian mowing machine. Oh. It still hung there while they ate the cold food and then went to bed, scattered without order or claim, up and down the two rooms, his mother in one bed where his father would later lie, the older brother in the other, himself the aunt and the two sisters on pallets on the floor. But his father was not in bed yet. The last thing the boy remembered was the depthless, harsh silhouette of the hat and coat bending over the rug, and it seemed to him that he had not even closed his eyes when the silhouette was standing over him, the fire almost dead behind it, the stiff foot prodding him awake. 
Catch up the mule, he said. And then he returned with the mule. There was his father standing in the black door, the rolled rug over his shoulder. Ain't you going to ride, he said. No, give me your foot. He bent his knee into his father's hand. The wiry, surprising power flowed smoothly, rising, he rising with it onto the mule's bare back. They had owned a saddle once. The boy could remember it, though not when or where. And with the same effortlessness, his father swung the rug up in front of him. Now, in the starlight, they retraced the afternoon's path up on the dusty road rife with honeysuckle through the gate and up the black tunnel to the drive to the lightless house where he sat on the mule and felt the rough warp of the rug drag across his thighs and vanish. Don't you want me to help? He whispered. His father did not answer. And now he heard again that stiff foot striking the hollow portico with that wooden and clock-like deliberation, that outrageous overstatement of the weight it carried. The rug hunched, not flung. The boy could tell that even in the darkness from his father's shoulder, struck the angle of the wall and floor with a sound unbelievably loud, thunderous. And then the foot again, unhurried and enormous. Well, a light came on in the house and the boy sat tense, breathing steadily and quietly and just a little fast, though the foot itself mm, did not increase its beat at all. Descending the steps now, now the boy could see him. Do you want to ride now? he whispered. We can both ride now. The light within the house altering, flaring up and sinking. Mm, he's coming down the stairs now, he thought. He had already ridden the mule up beside the horse block. Presently his father was up behind him and he doubled the reins over and slashed the mule across the neck. But before the animal could begin to trot, the hard thin arm came round him the hard knotted hand jerking the mule back to a walk. In the first red rays of the sun, they were in the lot, putting plow gear on the mules. This time the sorrel mare was in the lot before he heard it at all. The rider collarless and even bareheaded, trembling, speaking in a shaking voice as the woman in the house had done. His father, nearly looking up once before stooping again to the hame he was buckling so that the man on the mare spoke to his stooping back. You must realize you have ruined that rug. Wasn't there anybody here, any of your women? He ceased shaking. The boy watching him, the older brother leaning now in the stable door, chewing, blinking slowly and steadily at nothing, apparently. It cost, 
a hundred dollars. <laughs> but you never had a hundred dollars and you never will, so I'm going to charge you 20 bushels of corn against your crop and I will add it to your contract. When you come to the commissary, you can sign it. That won't keep Mrs. DeShane quiet, but maybe it'll teach you to wipe your feet off before you enter her house again. And then he was gone. The boy looked at his father, who still had not spoken or even looked up again, who was now adjusting the loggerhead in the hame. Pap, he said. His father looked at him, the inscrutable face, the shaggy brows beneath which the gray eyes glinted coldly. Suddenly the boy went toward him fast, stopping as suddenly. You done the best you could, he cried. If he wanted it done different, why didn't he wait and tell you how? He won't get no twenty bushels. He won't get none. We'll 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 gather it and, and, and we'll hide it, and I can watch. Did you put the cutter back in that straight stalk like I told you? No, sir, he said. Well then you go do that. That was Wednesday. During the rest of that week, he worked steadily at what was within his scope and some which was beyond it, with an industry that did not need to be driven nor even commanded twice. He had this from his mother, which was the difference that some, at least of what he did, he liked to do, such as splitting wood with that half-size axe, which his mother and aunt had earned or uh, saved money somehow to present him with at Christmas, in company with the two older women, and on one afternoon, even one of the sisters, he built pens for the shoat and the cow, which were a part of the father's contract with the landlord, and one afternoon, his father being absent, gone somewhere on one of the mules, he went to the field. They were running a middle buster now, his brother holding the plow straight while he handled the reins and walking beside the straining mule, a rich black soil, shearing cool and damp against his bare ankles, he thought, hey, maybe, maybe this is the end of it. Maybe even that 20 bushels that seems hard to have to pay for just a rug will be a cheap price for him to stop forever and always from being what he, what he used to be, thinking dreaming now so that his brother had to speak sharply to him to mind the mule. Maybe he, maybe he even won't collect the 20 bushels. Maybe it'll all add up and balance and vanish. Corn, rug, fire, the terror and grief, the being pulled two ways like between two teams of horses, gone, gone, done with forever and ever. And then it was Saturday. He looked up from beneath the mule he was harnessing and saw his father in the black coat and hat. Not that, his father said, the wagon gear. And then, two hours later, sitting in the wagon bed behind his father and brother on the seat, the wagon accomplished a final curve and he saw the weathered paintless store 
with its tattered tobacco and patent medicines posters and the tethered wagons and saddle animals below the gallery. He mounted the gnawed steps behind his father and brother, and there again was the lane of quiet, watching faces for the three of them to walk through. He saw the man in spectacles sitting at the plank table, and he did not need to be told this was the justice of the peace. And he sent one glare of fierce, exultant, partisan defiance at the man in the collar and cravat, now whom he had seen but twice before in his life, and that on a galloping horse, who now wore on his face an expression not of rage, but of amazed unbelief, which the boy could not have known, was at the incredible circumstance of being sued by one of his own tenants and came and stood against his father and cried at the justice, he ain't done it, he ain't burnt. Go back to the wagon, his father said. Burnt, the justice said. Do I understand this rug was burned too? Does anybody here claim it was, his father said. Go back to the wagon. But he did not. He merely retreated to the rear of the room crowded as that other had been, but not to sit down this time, instead to stand, pressing among the motionless bodies, listening to the voices. And you claim 20 bushels of corn is too high for the damage you did to the rug. He brought the rug to me and said he wanted the tracks washed out of it. I washed the tracks out and took the rug back to him. But you didn't carry the rug back to him in the same condition it was before you made the tracks on it. His father did not answer. And now, for perhaps half a minute, there was no sound at all save that of breathing a faint, steady suspiration of complete and intent listening. You decline to answer that, Mr. Snopes? Began his father. Did not answer. Well, I'm going to find against you, Mr. Snopes. I'm going to find that you were responsible for the injury to Major Despain's rug and hold you liable for it. But... Twenty bushels of corn seems a little high for a man in your circumstances to have to pay. Major de Spain claims it cost a hundred dollars. October corn will be worth about fifty cents. I figure that if Major de Spain can stand a ninety-five dollar loss on something he paid cash for, you can stand a five dollar loss you haven't earned yet. I hold you in damages due to Major Despain in the amount of 10 bushels of corn over and above your contract with him to be paid out of your crop at gathering time. Court adjourned. Well, it had taken no time, hardly. The morning was but half begun. 
He thought they would return home and perhaps back to the field since they were late. They were far behind all the other farmers, but instead his father passed his father passed on behind the wagon, merely indicating with his hand for the older brother to follow with it, and crossed the road toward the blacksmith shop opposite. Pressing on after his father, overtaking him, speaking, whispering up at the harsh, calm face beneath the weathered hat, he won't get no ten bushels, neither. He won't even get one. We'll, until his father glanced for an instant down at him, the face, absolutely calm, the grizzled eyebrows tangled above the cold eyes, the voice almost pleasant, almost gentle. You think so? Well, we'll wait till October anyway. The matter of the wagon, the setting of a spoke or two, and the tightening of the tires did not take long either. The business of the tires accomplished by driving the wagon into the spring branch behind the shop and letting it stand there, the mules nuzzling into the water from time to time, and the boy on the seat with the idle reins looking up the slope and through the sooty tunnel of the shed where the slow hammer rang and where his father sat on an upended cypress bolt easily, either talking or listening, still sitting there when the boy brought the dripping wagon up out of the branch and halted it before the door. Take them onto the shade and hitch, his father said, and he did so and returned. His father and the smith and a third man squatting on his heels inside the door were talking about crops and animals, the boy squatting too in the ammoniac dust and hoof parings and scales of rust, heard his father tell a long and unhurried story out of the time before the birth of the older brother even when he had been a professional horse trader. And then his father came up beside him where he stood before a tattered last year's circus poster on the other side of the store, gazing wrapped in quiet at the scarlet horses, the incredible poisings, and the convolutions of tulle and tights and the painted leers of comedians, and said, It's time to eat. But not at home. Squatting beside his brother against the front wall, he watched his father emerge from the store and produce from a paper sack a segment of cheese and divide it carefully and deliberately into three with his pocket knife and produce crackers from the same sack. They, all three, squatted on the gallery and ate slowly without talking. Then in the store again they drank from a tin dipper tepid water smelling of the cedar bucket and of living beech trees. And still they did not go home. It was a horse lot this time, a tall rail fence upon and along which men stood and sat and out of which one by one horses were led to be walked and trotted and then cantered back and forth along the road while the slow 
swapping and buying went on, and the sun began to slant westward. They, the three of them, watching and listening, the older brother with his muddy eyes and his steady, inevitable tobacco, the father commenting now and then on certain of the animals to no one in particular. It was after sundown when they reached home. They ate supper by lamplight, and then sitting on the doorstep, the boy watched the night, fully accomplished, listening to the whippoorwills and the frogs. When he heard his mother's voice, Abner! Oh, no, no, no! Oh, God, God, Abner! And he rose, whirled, and saw the altered light through the door where a candle stub now burned in a bottleneck on the table, and his father, still in the hat and coat, at once formal and burlesque, as though dressed carefully for some shabby and ceremonial violence, emptying the reservoir of the lamp back into the five-gallon kerosene can from which it had been filled while the mother tugged at his arm until he shifted the lamp to the other hand and flung her back, oh, not savagely or viciously, just hard, into the wall. Her hands flung out against the wall for balance, her mouth open, and in her face, the same quality of hopeless despair as had been in her voice. Then his father saw him standing in the door. Go to the barn and get that can of oil we were oiling the wagon with, he said. The boy did not move. And then he could speak. What? He cried. What are you? Go get that oil, his father said. Go. And then he was moving, running outside the house toward the stable. This, the old habit, the old blood, which he had not been permitted to choose for himself, which had been bequeathed him willy-nilly, and which had run for so long, and who knew where, battening on what of outrage and savagery and lust before it came to him. I could keep on, he thought. I could run on and on and never look back and never need see his face again, only I can't, I can't, I can't. The rusted can in his hand, now the liquid sploshing in it as he ran back to the house and into it and into the sound of his mother's weeping in the next room and handed the can to his father. Ain't you even gonna send a man? he cried. At least you sent a man before. And this time, his father didn't strike him. The hand came even faster than the blow had. The same hand which had set the can on the table with almost excruciating care, flashing from the can toward him too quick for him to follow it gripping him by the back of his shirt and on to tiptoe, 
before he had seen it quit the can. The face stooping at him in breathless and frozen ferocity. The cold, dead voice speaking over him to the older brother who leaned against the table, chewing with that steady, curious, sidewise motion of cows. Empty the can into the big one and go on. I'll catch up with you. You better tie him to the bedpost, the brother said. Do like I told you, the father said. And then the boy was moving, his bunched shirt and the hard bony hand between his shoulder blades, his toes just touching the floor, across the room and into the other one, past the sisters sitting with spread heavy thighs in the two chairs over the cold hearth and to where his mother and aunt sat side by side on the bed, the aunt's arms about his mother's shoulders. Hold him, the father said. The aunt made a startled movement. Not you, the father said. Lenny, take hold of him. I want to see you do it. His mother took him by the wrist. No, no, you'll hold him better than that. If he gets loose, don't you know what he is going to do? He will go up yonder, he jerked his head toward the road. Maybe I'd better tie him up. I'll hold him, his mother whispered. See you do then. And then his father was gone, the stiff foot heavy and measured upon the boards, ceasing at last. And then he began to struggle. His mother caught him in both arms, he jerking and wrenching at them. He would be stronger in the end. He knew that, but he had no time to wait for it. Let me go, he cried. I don't want to have to hit you. Let him go, the aunt said. If he don't go before God, I'm going up there myself. Don't you see I can't, his mother cried. Sardy, Sardy, no, no. Oh, help me, Lizzie. And then he was free. The aunt grasped at him, but it was too late. He whirled, running. His mother stumbled forward onto her knees behind him, crying to the nearer sister, catch him, Ned, catch him. <laughs> but that was too late. The sister, the sisters were twins, born at the same time, yet either of them now gave the impression of being, uh, of encompassing as much living meat and volume and weight as any other two of the family. Not yet having begun to rise from the chair, her head, face alone, nearly turned, presenting to him in the flying instant an astonishing expanse of young female features, untroubled by any surprise even, wearing only an expression of bovine interest. And then he was out of the room, out of the house, in the mild dust of the starlit road and the heavy ripeness of honeysuckle, the pale ribbon unspooling with terrific slowness under his running feet. Reaching the gate at last and turning in, 
running, his heart and lungs drumming, on up the drive toward the lighted house, the lighted door. He did not knock. He burst in, sobbing for breath, incapable for the moment of speech. He saw the astonished face of the black man in the linen jacket, without knowing when the man had appeared. Despain, he cried. He panted. Where's? And then he saw the white man, too, emerging from a white door down the hall. Barn, he cried. Barn. What? The white man said. Barn. Yes, barn. Catch him, the white man shouted. But it was too late this time, too. The black man grasped his shirt, but the entire sleeve, rotten with washing, carried away. And he was out that door, too, and in the drive again, and had actually never ceased to run, even while he was screaming into the white man's face. Behind him, the white man was shouting, My horse! Fetch my horse! And he thought for an instant of cutting across the park and climbing the fence into the road, but he did not know the park, nor how high the vine-masked fence might be, and he dared not risk it. So... He ran on, down the drive, blood and breath roaring. Presently, he was in the road again, though he could not see it. He could not hear either. The galloping mare was almost upon him before he heard her. And even then, he held his course, as if the very urgency of his wild grief and need must, in a moment, more find him wings, waiting until the ultimate instant to hurl himself aside into the weed-choked roadside ditch as the horse thundered past and on. For an instant in furious silhouette against the stars, the tranquil early summer night, which even before the shape of the horse and rider had vanished, stained abruptly and violently upward, a long swirling roar, incredible and soundless, blotting the stars, and he springing up and into the road again, running again, knowing it was too late, yet still running, even after he heard the shot, and an instant later, two shots, pausing now, without knowing he had ceased to run, crying, Pap, Pap, and running again, before he knew he had begun to run, stumbling, tripping over something, and scrabbling up again without ceasing to run looking backward over his shoulder at the glare as he got up and running on among the invisible trees, panting and sobbing, Father, Father. At midnight, he was sitting on the crest of a hill. He did not know it was midnight. He did not know how far he had come. There was no glare behind him now. And he sat now, 
his back toward what he had called home for four days anyhow his face toward the dark woods which he would enter when breath was strong again small shaking steadily in the chill darkness hugging himself into the remainder of his thin rotten shirt the grief and despair now no longer terror and fear but just grief and despair father my father he thought he was brave he cried suddenly aloud but not loud really no more than a whisper he was he was in the war he was in Colonel Sartorius's cavalry. Not knowing that his father had gone to that war a private in the fine old European sense, wearing no uniform, admitting the authority of and giving fidelity to no man or army or flag, going to war as Malbrook himself did for booty. It meant nothing, and less than nothing to him, if it were enemy booty or his own. The slow constellations wheeled on. It would be dawn, and then sun up, and after a while, he would be hungry. But that would be tomorrow, and now he was only cold, and... Walking would cure that. His breathing was easier now. And he decided to get up and go on, and then he found that he'd been asleep. Because he knew it was almost dawn, the night almost over. He could tell that from the whippoorwills. They were everywhere now. Among those dark trees below him, constant and inflectioned and ceaseless, so that as the instant for giving over to the day, birds drew nearer and nearer. There was no interval at all between them. He got up. It was a little stiff, but walking would cure that too, as it would the cold, and soon there'd be the sun. He went on down the hill toward the dark woods within which the liquid silver voices of the birds called unceasing the rapid and urgent beating of the urgent inquiring heart of the late spring night he did not look back good night